Good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure to have Jack Daniel in our congregation. Before all this happened, I, my family was scheduled to be in Oklahoma right now, and he said he would preach for me while uh, I was gone. Well, I'm not gone now, but I'm still very glad to have him here to um, take up some of the slack during a more stressful time uh, for me and for the church. Um, very always glad to hear from him. Uh, Jack was a pastor in Andover, Massachusetts for 35 years at uh, the same church. Uh, that, that's a record, by the way. Very few people pre, uh, pastor a church for that long, uh, a single church for that long. So anyway, we're, we're blessed to have him this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for him, and then it'll be time to open your Bibles. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Jack. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his contribution to the life of our con congregation. I thank you for his uh, friendship and mentorship to me. And Lord, we pray that this morning you will open our minds and hearts for the very encouraging message that Jack has for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Wes. I so appreciate our pastor. He's showing uh, great leadership in this time. And uh, this is hard. This is hard for pastors, especially a pastor like ours who is so relational and uh, just loves his people. And so be sure when you are praying for people to pray for Pastor Wes and uh, Susie and their children. Uh, we are grateful and thankful for them. Just six weeks ago, who could have imagined that we would be in this whole new situation, whole new reality? And for some people, they're doing fine. Life hasn't changed very much. But uh, we know for other people, they've lost jobs. Some people are fearing that they're going to lose businesses. Uh, some people have known people who have died. There are actually two members of my former church in Massachusetts, uh, both elderly, who have passed away from the virus. And a close family member of ours had it for uh, a couple of weeks and was very, very sick during that time. So it's affecting us. There are others who are concerned about their life savings or their retirement savings. And there are people who are just feeling the isolation of being uh, alone in their homes, unable to be with family and friends. And there are other people who have the opposite problem. The stress of having the whole family together and maybe having to homeschool creates its own set of challenges. It's, uh, it's a strange time. Vacations have been canceled. And uh, we're, we're electric, elective surgery has been postponed. I know a cancer patient who is waiting, and now he has to wait until June to have surgery. And so this is a, uh, a stressful time. It's an odd time, something no one has ever experienced and something the whole world is experiencing, something that perhaps our grandchildren will hear about and uh, will tell them and and they'll wonder what we were doing during this time. It's one of those times in history, I believe. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that I think is uh, very practical because it was about a time such as this. And I've, if I had a title, if we had a bulletin, I'd call this sermon In the Meantime because it's about what do we do in the meantime? What are we to do? How are we to make sense of this time that we're in right now? How are we to live in it uh, in a way that does not uh, crush our spirit, that does not drive us further away from the Lord, that does not weaken us. How can we thrive in this time? And so the, the passage, I'll give it to you, and you can look it up in your Bibles, and I'll read it in a moment, but I want to give a little background, first of all. It's in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, 
It's a familiar passage if you are a student of the Bible. It may not be to other people, but it's Jeremiah 29, and we'll look at verses 4 through 14. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. And the background is that about 600 years before Christ, the Babylonian Empire was expanding. Babylon was roughly where Iraq is today. The armies of Babylon and of King Nebuchadnezzar swept across the Middle East, and they eventually invaded Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was besieged for about two years. It held out for about two years and then finally fell to the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. There was a terrible loss of life and terrible famine and suffering of just an unprecedented um, scale in the life of the Jews. And what happened was the temple was destroyed, the Ark of the Covenant was taken, that wooden box that had the Ten Commandments and other artifacts of Israel's early history, and it was never to be seen again, disappeared from history at that point. And the Ark was the very presence of God. It represented that God was with the people of Israel, the, the Jews at that time. The royal family was killed. Uh, the upper classes were taken 600 miles to the east to Babylon. And there they were uh, held as captives. And so that was the background for what Jeremiah now writes. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter from Jerusalem because he was left behind to those captives in Babylon during what is called the, the exile or the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And this is what Jeremiah writes under the inspiration of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And here's the verse that so many of us know and love. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the question is, 
it is a question that Jeremiah really is dealing with. How do, how do we live in this time? What are we to be doing? How are we to make sense of this unprecedented time in our lives, in the life of the nation, the life of the whole world? That's what he is saying. He's writing to a people that have been traumatized in the most horrific way. Their families are gone. Their homes are gone. They've been uprooted and marched 600 miles away. Their whole culture, their temple, the very presence of God, it's all gone, and they're traumatized. And Jeremiah writes to them, attempting to answer that question, how are they to live now? How are we to live now? And there's three things that come out of this passage that I want us to reflect on. The first is found in verses four to six. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, see what they produce. Marry, have children, then marry off your children. In the words of that Christian writer of a generation ago, Mary Rodman, bloom where you are planted. She wrote a book of devotionals in that title that I think may have been original with her is now really in our language. And we understand what it means. We're not simply to survive in this time. Uh, we'll get through it, some better than others, but we're not to survive. We're somehow to grow in this time. And that's the challenge for all of us. The false prophets were saying, and you can read this in chapter, chapter 28, just uh, the, verse, the passage before, the chapter before, they were saying, this is gonna last two years. In two years, you're gonna be back home, so don't bother unpack. Keep everything packed. Two years, you'll be home. Well, you know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? False prophet, it doesn't come true. A true prophet, the prophecy is true. And so Jeremiah sets them straight and says, no, this is gonna be a lot longer than you think. This is gonna go on. This is gonna last 70 years. You may not get back there, but your children and your grandchildren will. And so the, the counsel is not to hunker down and try to just outweigh this. That's our temptation. Whenever we are in a, a situation that is stressful, the first temptation is just to batten down the hatches and try to ride this out and get it over with as soon as we can, count the days until it's over, and we'll get through it. That's not the counsel that Jeremiah is giving. He's saying, no, this is going to last longer. We all thought we'd be out of it by now. We thought maybe by Easter. That's past. Then we thought maybe by the end of, of April. Doesn't look like that's going to be it. Now we're hoping for the 15th of May, the middle of May. But even then, things are not going to be the same. The experts are telling us until there's a vaccine that's widely distributed, things are not going to be back to normal completely. And who knows how long that's going to take. And so the council is, we've got to figure out now, counsel from the Lord, how to make sense and how to make our lives work in this time. Someone once told me, a couple from my church who had to move a lot during their life because of the career they had. So they would be a year here, they'd be two years here. And uh, they said to me how they survived that and really kept their family together through that was to go against uh, what might have been their instinct to really be counterintuitive. Instead of just staying 
kind of status, putting things in storage. They said, we found that we had to unpack, put the curtains up, put the pictures up, meet our neighbors, invite them over, join a church, join organizations, and fully invest ourselves in that new community, even if it was only for a year. And that was how we survived. That's how we made sense and weren't simply hunkered down. I had to learn that when we moved to Maine. Maine's about, Maine winters are about a month longer here than where we lived in Massachusetts, about two weeks at the beginning, two weeks at the end. At first I thought I could just outweigh this. Well, quickly found out I can't. And I had a choice. I could either be griping and grumbling and grousing all the time, at which point my wife would have been uh, ready to divorce me. We could have moved to Florida, which we weren't going to do, or I could embrace winter. So I decided to embrace winter. And even on the coldest, snowiest days, I am outside, often on my tractor, moving snow. Thank God for that tractor. That is my sanity. That's how I make sense of winter in Maine. So this is what we've got to do. If we try to just, in any situation like this, try to simply wait it out, we're going to miss what God is doing in this time. If you notice in the passage, the Lord says, I carried you. I'm the one who allowed this to happen. And in the permissive will of God, he's allowed this time. Did he cause the virus? Of course not. This is not an act of God. It's an act of, of human error. But he allowed it to happen. And so we've got to discern what is he saying to each of us. And we can only figure that out. We can't figure out what he's saying for America or for the world. We can only try to understand, God, what do you want me to know in this time? How am I to learn? How am I to grow and bloom in this time and not simply survive? One of the things that I've had to do uh, is work my routine, develop a whole new routine. Because I'll be honest with you, I've kind of been lost in this time. It's been a confusing time for me. And this is maybe a difficult confession for a pastor to make, but I sometimes found it hard to pray and read my Bible. I'm still doing that, but sometimes I'm reading my Bible and I'm not really grasping what's being said. And that's been a struggle for me. My identity is gone. I, I've been out of the pastorate, but I've been working with pastors. I've been coaching pastors and I've been meeting them and that's all changed. And so I, I've got to admit, I've, I've been a little lost. And so for me, the routine has become very important. And sometimes when I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing next, I simply do the next thing, whatever that is. Maybe it's to go out and do a little yard work. Maybe it's to split some firewood. Maybe it's to text some friends. Maybe it is to pray. But to do the next thing, you know, it's a, a principle of behavioral psychology that often you can't think your way out of, out of a feeling, especially something like depression. But you can often act your way out of that feeling. And so follow your routine, create a routine. What is your routine when the temptation is just to stay in bed in the morning? Do the next thing, whatever that is, get out of bed, get dressed. Put the coffee on, feed the cat, take the dog for a walk. Whatever it is, 
do that next thing. That's what the Lord is telling the people, the ancient Jews living in Babylon, plant a garden. Now, it's a little early to be doing that now, but you can get ready to do that. Plant a garden. Do the next mundane thing. Get married. Have a family. Watch your children grow. It's going to be a long time. Don't try to wait it out, but bloom where you're planted. Then the second piece of advice he gives is to work for the welfare of others. We see that in verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I don't know if you've ever uh, realized this. I discovered it in looking at this passage. This is the only place in the Old Testament scriptures where the people of God are told to pray and work to bless their enemies. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus, of course, says it. But it's nowhere else in the Old Testament. In fact, it's nowhere else in ancient literature. Nowhere else are people told to pray for their tormentors and their captors. And it's only here. And it's an amazing thing. It says, seek the peace. Well, as Pastor West has taught us, the word peace in the Old Testament is the word shalom, and it's a very rich word. It means far more than just what we understand to mean peace. It means prosperity. It means wholeness. It means health. It means goodness. It means harmony within and with others. It means joy, all of that. And so Jeremiah is saying, seek this for your captors. Seek this for the wider community. Seek the shalom. Now, why is this good counsel? We're seeing lots of stories on the news today about people that are really going above and beyond. And they're, in, they're inspiring stories. Uh, distillers who are making hand sanitizer where they used to make dis, distill whiskey. Uh, people who are sewing face masks in their own home. And all kinds of stories like this of people really going, in, in some cases, doing very heroic things to bless the wider community. And it's not just for the church to do this. All of us have within us the image of God. Genesis tells us that we're all made in the image of God. And even though that image, like a mirror, has been shattered through sin and through rebellion against God, you can still see something of the face of God in people's actions in their lives. And that, that image, damaged though it is and only redeemable through Jesus Christ, but that image is still there. And because God is a good God, a God of love, a God of kindness, a God of mercy, a God of blessing, there's something in human beings that wants to be congruent in that way with God, even if they don't understand it. They know there is something good about doing good. Abraham Lincoln said it very simply. He said, my religion is very plain. When I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. There's something about doing good that is going to bless us as we bless others. 
And so in this time of confusion, in this time of lostness, when we're trying to find our way, if we can do good, if we can find ways to do good in the simplest ways to other people, it will bless us. Proverbs 11.17 says it this way, your own soul is nourished when you are kind, but it is destroyed when you are cruel. Your own soul is nourished when you are kind, but it is destroyed when you are cruel. There's something about that nourishment when we bless other people, it comes back to us. A while back, I was stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts. This was before everything had gotten shut down. In this particular Dunkin' Donuts, it was in a downtown area, so there was no drive-through. And so I went in, and the line was stretching right to the door. And I'm beginning to gripe about that. And the day hadn't started too well. I don't even know why, but for some reason, I was kind of in a foul mood. And my mother would have said, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It was just beginning to be one of those days. I was just finding reasons to be annoyed with people. And I had kind of a long day ahead of me, and part of it I wasn't looking forward to. And it just was not going well. And there I'm waiting in line, and I'm getting more and more annoyed by this. And, and I could see that the people behind the counter, one person in particular, just seemed to be getting things wrong, and people were waiting longer for their orders. And the line was inching forward, and I was getting more and more annoyed. I'm thinking all those snarky thoughts that we have when we're in a situation like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a letter to Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to complain. I'm going to fill out one of the surveys right now. This is not good. How hard is this? And I get a little closer, and I sensed all of a sudden, I looked at the person who was waiting on our line, and it was an older woman, and she was struggling. She was getting what's wrong with the, the, the computer, getting the orders, and I, I, I felt bad. And I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, I don't know if this, is, this happens to you, but I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, Jack, why can't you just be kind? I didn't hear it. It wasn't audible. I wasn't hallucinating. But I heard it in my spirit. Jack, why can't you just be kind? Is that so hard? And I looked at this woman, and I felt bad for her. And when I got up there, instead of all the snarky, snide things I was going to say, I... I said, how are you doing? And she looked up for the first time and made eye contact. And she said, I'm not doing good. This is my second day and I'm not doing good. And I said, it's going to get easier. You're going to be okay. And she smiled a little bit and thanked me. As I walked out, I sensed a wave of God's love and blessing flow over my soul. My soul was nourished in that morning. It was such a little thing to do, but my soul was strengthened, and the rest of the day was blessed because of that. It doesn't have to be heroic. There's no way I can turn whiskey into hand 
sanitizer. I can't make masks. But it doesn't have to be heroic. It's the little things, and Jesus tells us that in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. It's a scene from heaven. And there everyone is assembled before the Lord. And he says to them, and this is what's going to be remembered in heaven. I was sick and you cared for me. I was poor and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. When did we see you, Lord? Inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What's going to be remembered about your life in heaven? What's going to be remembered about my life in heaven? Certainly not all the sermons. We're not going to need my sermons in heaven. We're going to have the living word of God there. We're not going to need the written word anymore. What's going to be remembered? The little things that we do for other people, maybe even just to pray for them, and that's the most important thing, or to call someone, or to text someone, to encourage someone we see at social distance, our own family, others, strangers, who knows? But what that might be the most important thing you ever do, and that's what's remembered in heaven. Seek the welfare of others. Bloom where you're planted. Then finally, the last piece of advice that Jeremiah gives is to find hope. And he says it in verse, starting in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you with all the nations and places from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I've carried you into exile. This is the message of hope. And so many of us have held on to that verse that God knows the plans and the plans are to, 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 to give us a blessing and a hope and a future. We need hope. We need to find hope in a time like this. We need a big hope and we need a small hope. In the... The exile for the Jews is framed and tempered by these words of hope. Even though those who are living at the time of the exile will probably not get back to Babylon after 70 years, but their children will and their grandchildren will. And to know that your children and your grandchildren will be blessed is all we need. We can go through anything if we've got that hope for them. And so this is a hope. It's an earthly hope. It's a temporal hope. Because you know what's going to happen just a few generations after they come back during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the temple is rebuilt and the walls are rebuilt. Shortly after that, guess what happens? Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquer. Jerusalem. And then, just a few generations after that, guess what happens? The Romans, under Julius Caesar, conquer. And then, in AD 70, the Romans destroy the temple. And then, around 120, they destroy all of Jerusalem. 
in the whole land and all the Jewish people are scattered in the final diaspora around the world. And so they needed a small hope, but they also needed a big hope. In this passage, looks beyond. It says, it looks to the messianic period when the Lord says, then I will gather you from all the nations in the places where I've banished you and I'll bring you back. That's a picture of, of the time of the Messiah. When the scripture elsewhere tells us that God will gather all of his people back from all ages for where they have been scattered and bring them home. Because you see, for the Jewish people, the promised land was paradise. Not literally, because it's kind of a hard scrabble country, small geographical area. It's got some beautiful, bountiful areas and fertile areas, but it's got a lot of desert too. No, not literally. It was not paradise literally. It was a type of paradise. It was a picture of paradise. It was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do in the messianic era, at the end of time, in the kingdom of heaven. He was going to bring them to their final promised land. And so this is both a short-term promise where they will come back in time and in history, but a long-term big promise. And we need that hope too. We need small hopes. Do you know the Bible says you should have something to look forward to every seven days, every week? Do you know that the Bible says we should live our lives in, in week-long compartments? That's what the Sabbath is. Think about the ancient Israelites. They had a subsistence existence. They, they struggled all week long just to live, just to get to the next day, just to get to the next season, the next year, just to see their children grow. They were constantly oppressed and they struggled just to live, to survive. And yet God said one day a week, I want you to rest. One day a week, I want you to feast. I want you to, to enjoy life. I want you to worship, to gather with your people in the synagogue or in the temple. But that was something they looked forward to. Can you imagine as they are toiling, knowing that it may be Monday, it may be Tuesday, it may be Wednesday, but the Sabbath is coming. And that gave them hope. In a time like this, how are we to live? We're to have hope. We're to have something that in the short term, in the temporal world that is going to sustain us, something every week that we're looking forward to doing. Whatever that might be, we need that. We also need the big hope. Because when this is over, there'll be something else. Hopefully not for the whole world, but for us as individuals. Because we know how life ends. We need a big hope. We need that hope that when our end comes, when we go around that corner called death, that we have the assurance that God in his infinite grace and mercy, because we have hoped in him and trusted him, and asked him for forgiveness, that he will bring us home. In our moment of greatest need, our moment of total weakness, that moment of death, that our hope is that God will come and in the strong and loving arms of Jesus Christ, he will carry us home to paradise.
to that garden of Eden to be with him and all of his people forever. Do you have that hope? You have to have that hope. That's how we make sense of this time. We need to bloom where planted. We need to work for the welfare of others. We need to find hope. Let me just close with one short passage of scripture from the book of Lamentations. After Jeremiah wrote wrote the book of Jeremiah, then came the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations is his laments, his sorrows, expressing his sorrows in just a few chapters of what had happened to Jerusalem at this time, what had happened to God's people. And it starts this way, verse 1 of chapter 1. How deserted lies the city, Jerusalem, once so full of people. Sounds kind of familiar as we drive around. But then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 19. I remember my afflictions in my wanderings, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Now let me end this message with God's blessing. We leave this gathering together. This part of the worship is over, but the most sacred and most important part of our worship begins. And that's when we walk and talk the love of Jesus Christ into our world in whatever way we can this week. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.